Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett. Today I'm talking with Holly Everett. Holly is an associate professor in the Department of Folklore at Memorial University, cross-listed with the School of Music's Ethnomusicology program. She's the author of Roadside Crosses in Contemporary Memorial Culture, as well as articles in Contemporary Legend, Cuisine, Ethnologies, Folklore, The Folklore Historian, The Journal of American Folklore, Music Cultures, and Popular Music and Society. Holly is also the current head of the Department of Folklore at Memorial and the president of the Folklore Studies Association of Canada. Hi, Holly, and welcome to the show. Hi, Tara. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So just to start off, how did you get involved with folklore? Like, what brought you to Munn? How did you How did you end up here? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'll give you the shorter version of the story. Um, but at a certain point in my uh, 20s, um, I started thinking about going back to school. And I remembered that folklore was a thing that you could study. Um, as an undergraduate, I'd had classes that were cross-listed with the, with the folklore program at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, so I went and, you know, in, that was in the old days, um, in the uh, 1990s. So I went to the library and looked up programs that had folklore, I mean, universities that had folklore programs in the microfiche. And um, I also wrote a letter to um, a folklorist whose book I had read that I thought was fantastic. This is a woman who used to write um, for Bob Newhart. Uh, on television, Noreen Dresser, and she wrote a book called American Vampires. And this book was about, you know, she had done historical research, you know, about legends about vampires uh, in New England, but she had also interviewed people who who thought of themselves as vampires. And she included the questionnaire that she used at the back of the book. And I thought, this is cool. I want to do this thing. And so I had written her a letter to ask her what programs she would recommend. And she, she had listed a few, and she had written me back on the letter that I wrote her. And so around the top of the letter in the margins, she wrote, and there's also the program at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And I thought, where is that? <laughs> Thus began the odyssey that brought me here. So I looked at different programs and I applied to different programs, but then I just decided uh, I was living in Texas at the time and I was ready for a change of scenery. And uh, Newfoundland seemed like it would definitely fit the bill. (laughs) For a change of scenery? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it's definitely a change of scenery to anybody who comes here for the first time. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I thought, hmm, I could go to another country, study folklore, when might I ever have that chance again? I better take it. And so is that for your MA? Yes, that was for my master's degree. So I first came to Newfoundland in August of 1996. And you're still here today? And I'm still here. I never left. <laughs> and so now you're the department head, is that? Yes. Yeah. And you're also the president for the Canadian Folklore... Yes, the Folklore, Folklore Studies Association of Canada. Yes. Uh, we have um, one-year terms, so uh, I'm president this year, and um, Joy Frazier will be president next year. Joy Frazier is also a Memorial Folklore graduate. And so with the folklore, I'm going to say that every time. Can I just say FASAC? FASAC you can, is, yes. the, is the acronym <laughs> for that, and that's yes. what I often hear. So I'm going to say FASAC when I say that. All right. So for FASAC, uh, 
each year they hold a conference and this yes. year it's taking place at Memorial? Yes. Um, so that's May 31st through June 2nd. And so uh, right now we're getting abstracts in. The deadline for those abstracts is February the 1st. Um, and our theme, uh, we kept it very broad, is home. So there are a lot of possible, you know, topics for people to to pull out for that. And so this will be the first time that FISAC meets at Memorial um, since the 90s, I think. It's been a really long time. So we thought it's time. And also people were like, yeah, why haven't we met at Memorial before this? So we're excited about it. And so where has the FISAC taken place uh, outside of Memorial? So um, it's generally been, say, in Quebec uh, because of the f former ethnology program at Laval. Um, but it's also sometimes met with the um, Congress of the Social Studies and Humanities Research Council. Uh, so a bunch of academic organizations meet together every other year. And um, SHRC, Social Studies, uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, organized these massive meetings so that people can go to more than one and not spend all of their <laughs> money. Um, so um, SAC has tried to meet with um, this, this huge meeting every other year. So for example, last year we met in Prince Edward Island at the University of PEI. The year before that we met with what's called Congress um, at uh, Ryerson University. Um, before that I'm not going to be able to remember but <laughs> so kind of all over and it's kind of all over and we tried to go west and then east but that doesn't always work out in terms of who can take it on and who can't. So, <laughs> And so when you came here to do your MA, what, what were you interested in? What was your topic that you wrote about when you, when you first came? <laughs> when I wrote my statement of uh, intent, I think it's called, on the grad school application, I was really interested in folk music. And I had just been hearing on the radio in the States, um, on NPR, about this new kind of folk music um, in the Balkans called uh, Turbo Folk. And people talked about it as a really aggressive kind of folk music that was very nationalistic, you know, and, and very patriotic and kind of the um, aggressive kind of hard shell patriotism like we're seeing these days in, say, the United States. Um, and so I was really interested uh, in this idea um, of, you know, folk music being used as kind of maybe a, a weapon. So that's what I was interested in when I arrived. <laughs> but as many people do, um, I realized that there were so many things that could be studied. I did not end up pursuing the study of turbo folk. <laughs> so what did you end up studying? <laughs> what, what was your? Yes, um, so I ended up uh, doing my master's thesis on roadside memorials. Um, memorial assemblages that people put up for at the site of fatal car crashes. Um, and I had seen these all my life growing up in Texas, but, you know, had not sort of thought of them as a kind of folk art or folklore, um, which is what I realized after, you know, having some classes here at, at Munn. And I went to um, a professor at the time and said, I have this idea. And she said, that's a great idea. You should do it. So I did. <laughs> <laughs>
And so has that work, I, I know you're currently doing some more work kind of on roadside memorials. So has that work kind of followed you throughout your career? Yeah, so I, um, I finished my thesis in 1998. Um, and then I, um, some people, some people encouraged me to see if I could get it published as a book. And so um, it came out uh, in a book form um, from University of North Texas Press in 2002. And um, so every once in a while, um, since 2002, you know, I might get um, an email from somebody who's come across the book and is interested in, you know, maybe finding out more about a particular memorial or um, more often telling me more about a particular memorial, you know, information that I wouldn't have had access to at the time. Um, so that's been really interesting, but at the same time, then there's been occasions on which um, people have asked me to write something on roadside memorials for, say, a folklore encyclopedia of some kind, um, or have asked for consultation, say, um, I got an email from a police officer in Australia who was um, trying to work with the, the survivors of a car crash victim um, and he was concerned about these memorials and, and, you know, dealing with people in a, in a compassionate fashion um, because there was a, a particular controversy over a memorial in, in Australia. So, you know, we talked about what those kinds of memorials mean to people. So every so often I get calls like that as well. And um, let's see, what else? And occasionally people will send me pictures of, of you know, memorials that they've encountered. Um, for example, there was a, a surf accident memorial um, in, in Texas that somebody sent me a picture of. So it included the person's surfboard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so these, you know, these queries have popped up every so often for, well, since, since 2002. And so your current research, are you working with a geologist or geographer? A geographer, mm -hmm. a geographer um, at the University of Gdańsk in Poland. Um, she put together a, uh, a conference or a seminar on roadside memorials last June. And um, she invited me and a sociologist from Romania named Irina Stahl, who also does work on roadside memorials in Romania. Um, so it was really interesting to get together and to compare notes and look at pictures and, you know, talk about what we thought about these kinds of, you know, very beautiful kinds of memorials. And was there, did you notice any, I guess, similarities and differences across those different countries and those different cultures? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, there seems to be, I'm, I'm not sure I could call it a universal, but, you know, a sort of uh, typical a typical way or a typical elements that make up these kinds of memorials. So usually there's a there's a central object of some kind, and very often um, that's a, a cross, a Christian cross will be this. Not always, um, but you know pretty often. And for example, in a place like uh, Poland, which is predominantly Catholic, um, that's usually what's going to be the centerpiece. Um, then usually there will be flowers some kind and then candles 
but then you'll also get sometimes, you know, religious objects like uh, rosaries or saints' candles or holy cards, things like that. Um, so we saw these these same kinds of combinations of things. Um, but I have been noticing uh, recently that it seems like it, in Poland that candles are a more dominant and important item at, at roadside memorials there. Um, kind of those, like those perpetual lights that you sometimes see in, in cemeteries, those same kind of, of lights, um, where, you know, you might have a few flowers, but then say 20 candles. Um, one of the really interesting things about roadside memorials um, in Romania that uh, Dr. Stahl told us about was how she found out information about not just the memorials, but about what had happened um, from Romani flower girls who sell flowers on the street. Um, and they would know all the details of what had happened, but also details about the people being memorialized because they would have been around both, I guess, when the accident, you know, or near the time the accident had happened, but also when the memorial would have been put together. And so um, Dr. Stahl, you know, uh, talked a lot to these uh, young girls and women um, because they seemed, they were so knowledgeable about every single memorial. Yeah, I can't imagine that there's an equivalent in, like, you did some work in Texas. I can't imagine there's right. an equivalent of, of people who are just kind of around On to see the street. The, yeah, yes. To it's, see these being built. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems to be a, a very unusual to find somebody with that kind of information. When I was in Texas doing field work, a lot of times, um, if people did approach me while I was taking photographs of a memorial, they were asking me, did I know more about it, you know? Uh, but... Uh, a lot of times what you're going on is just what's in front of you. And I think, have you also recently done some work on uh, assemblages or what's left on grave sites? Yes, um, for the um, upcoming Oxford Handbook of American Folklore and Folklife, uh, I wrote a piece on grave markers and roadside memorials. And so that was kind of a, since it's for an encyclopedia, and a, uh, encyclopedia, you know, it's kind of a big picture look um, at what folklorists, the ways that folklorists and other people have uh, other people have studied grave markers and, and roadside memorials. So um, I looked at the construction, you know, and the way the construction has changed over time, uh, different materials used, you know, the the way that you know symbols or icons of of on grave markers have changed over time and how those have been connected to say large-scale um, social changes or you know um, economic constraints of various kinds. Uh, Simon Bronner who is a, a well-known uh, folklorist uh, wrote a great um, piece in a in a folklore book folklore textbook that a lot of Folklore 1000 students have read um, <laughs> on the changes in iconography on New England gravestones um, from the 1600s into the 1800s. And so that's the same kind of thing that I was trying to do to give different perspectives on, you know, the different ways that people feel towards um, grave sites and the way that's reflected in um, what they leave or don't leave or, you know, in the ways that they tend it over time or, or stop tending it after a certain period of time. And what, what do you think is the most interesting thing that you've come across on a graveyard being left there, like on a gravesite? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, 
I've seen a, a wide variety of, of things left. I think, and this is not technically a, a gravestone, but I'm just thinking of um, the memorial to the, uh, the victims of the witch hunts in Salem in the 1690s. And um, at the memorial that's there in Salem, right next to the old burying ground, um, you know, each person that was executed has like a stone with their name on it. And when I was there visiting, I know there were um, bits of wax left on some of the stones. And there was one in particular for um, a, a guy, actually, whose name I'm not going to be able to remember now because <laughs> somebody asked, um, but had much more wax um, than any other gravestone. And I, it made me wonder, you know, what what led to those those bits of wax <laughs> still being left there, you know. And so do you have any, did you find any information? Did you do a little research? Well, I looked around and tried to, you know, like I said, there were there were little bits of wax on, on others of them, but I couldn't figure out um, what connection there might have been between them or, you know, why it was on some of them, but not others of them. And uh, at the same time that I was there, um, I noticed uh, uh, posters, some, some uh, folklore graduate student, you know, was looking for people to ask about their experiences of Salem. And I thought, okay, this person is going to find that out. And I'll read about it in their thesis <laughs> when it comes out later. So I haven't seen that yet, actually. But, uh, you know, when you when you have done that kind of work yourself and you see somebody's flyer, you know, you're like, oh, yes, go. <laughs> <laughs> so you left that research to a future yes. graduate student. Yeah, didn't want to interfere, you know. <laughs> And this is, um, I know this is something that's come up kind of in a, in a talk that in Diane Ty's class and just kind of through going through graveyards myself, uh, through work and yeah. personal and whatnot. Yeah. Do you notice um, graveyards perhaps tending to be a bit more personal or going back towards a bit more personal today? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because, you know, there was, um, see, I'm not sure when this would have started, but. There was a sort of move toward, I guess, what you'd call, you know, kind of a decorative minimalism in, in cemeteries where, especially in the, in the cemeteries that have the flat stones made so that, you know, groundskeepers can can just drive over the top with the mower. Um, and so when I was first doing the roadside memorial research, one of the pe things people talked to me about was that they felt a lot freer to decorate you know, at a memorial at the accident site than they did at the cemetery, um, where there, there were restrictions. Um, in some cases, you know, you weren't technically allowed to leave anything um, unless it fit in this vase, this particular vase that was attached to the to the stone. Um, in other places, there were restrictions with regard to like how long something could be left, that kind of thing. So um, they just felt a lot more freedom to decorate at a, at a, at a roadside memorial. Um, so in the meantime, though, as you mentioned, one of the other things I noticed is that in a lot of cases, people don't pay any attention to those regulations. <laughs> and they'll just do what they want. And they'll, you know, maybe with the idea they know that it's going to get removed, but... 
they really want to put that snow globe there, you know, or that bag of Skittles, you know, for their friend. Um, and so they'll decorate anyway. And I, I think that's one of the things that in, intrigues me and inspires me the most um, about about grave markers and roadside memorials is that in a lot of cases, you know, people are doing things that are technically not allowed. Or in some cases, as with roadside memorials, not even legal, you know. <laughs> and I think that's amazing that, you know, this, the, this creative impulse that humans have comes out in these ways regardless, you know, of what, say, the Department of Safety is telling you you can or cannot do. <laughs> And you mentioned uh, Skittles, so I know yes. that uh, food is another one of your research interests. Yes. So what about food has kind of uh, taken hold of your interest, or what have you really, you know, been interested in there and written upon? Yeah, so um, one of the things that, well, when I was, let me frame this, <laughs> when I was studying for my comps, my comprehensive exams um, as a doctoral student, um, I came across this issue of uh, Southern Folklore Quarterly. This was a while back. Um, and Lucy Long had written an article about what she called culinary tourism that really intrigued me. Um, and as a person, you know, as someone who had moved here from, from Texas, you know, I felt that I had had kind of a culinary tourism experience first coming here, being introduced to a lot of different kinds of foods and not being able to even in some cases buy the food I was used to having in Texas right so so in some cases it was like well I don't know what this is but <laughs> I'm gonna eat it <laughs> so um I got intrigued with that idea and that was something you know people had written had started writing about tourism in Newfoundland um by that time um, but the food thing hadn't quite gotten on the go um, but there was an article that came out in the Globe and Mail that said uh, culinary tourism is hot and I thought hmm is it <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how I got in intrigued about it you know and I had also found uh, that that people were really open to talking about food um, but also you know Newfoundland so I had an idea that if I went around the province and asked people about food you know they would be happy to talk about it and uh, <laughs> I was right and also um, I think about you know as I've said many times to people I think about food all the time anyway so I thought <laughs> you know why not pour some of that obsession <laughs> into my academic work we think about food a lot in the office. Yeah. It's, it's one of our, yeah, it's one of our main things. Right? Yeah. We've done some food workshops and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And after, uh, you know, after working on roadside memorials for a while, uh, I, I felt like I wanted a topic that was easier to approach people about. And I thought this one, not, you know, not so sensitive. Um, although in some cases, you know, more controversial than I would have anticipated when I first started out say for example uh, regarding the use of seal meat ah, in okay. yeah. traditional Newfoundland foods yeah I find this interesting because um, the summer student that we had this summer uh, Natalie is uh -huh. writing about craft beer and right we actually brew together so I just right learning about the craft brewing industry in the province I find fascinating because 
there are so many new ones and it seems like that's really become yes it just seems to have kind of exploded in the last year or two maybe yeah natalie was saying that something like there's 14 or 15 micro brews there's 20 odd on a list that are either uh in process or open so there's probably i can't think of them offhand but there's probably like between seven and ten that are open or opening within the next like say three months or so yeah but then there's like ten or so more that are like (laughs) in process right which is crazy yeah and i um so the place i lived in texas before i came here is a kind of a, a tourist destination um austin texas um both for music and food and so i guess i've part of my interest in in tourism in newfoundland and and food in particular stems from that you know this the idea of thinking about the place you live from the perspective of you know someone who's coming for the first time i I find that um an interesting intellectual challenge (laughs) it's funny my friend recently sent me um ads toward some like old tourism ads and yeah. I love looking at those there oh yes there was this great one which had um different people kind of around the island like kind of off off side of the island and there was uh-huh. one person wearing um water skis <laughs> and I think this was from the 60s and I was thinking wow that wow. really didn't take off that, yeah <laughs> that's something that really never happened here yeah interesting idea yeah <laughs> see how that wouldn't work here (laughs) but yeah it's interesting seeing how we represent ourselves and then how people interpret that representation yeah from the other side definitely yeah and you know being um also being from texas you know uh people have particular ideas about (laughs) what texas is like and what people from texas are like um and so i just you know try to flip those those um, assertions and think about it from the other side. Hmm. And so you're doing that work at Memorial University and uh, I guess 2018, that was the 50th anniversary? Yes, of the department. Yeah, so the department was founded in 1968 um, and Dr. Herbert Halpert usually gets the the credit for that. Um, So Dr. Halpert had attended um, the Folklore Institute at Indiana University and I think, you know, coming to Newfoundland saw that, you know, the same thing, I think, or the, the same approach could work very well here. Um, so he founded the um, folklore department. And at the same time, the Department of English and the Department of Folklore uh, founded what would what we know now as the uh, Folklore and Language Archive, which is also uh, 50 years old as of 2018. <laughs> So that started out as, um, I think, you know, you kind of going off the, uh, the Indiana University model. Halpert and other professors in the department um, would send students home with questionnaires, <laughs> you know, that they would hopefully come back, you know, with troves of folklore that they had gathered while they were home over the holidays. And so I think the very first, um, what would you call it? Um, contributions to the archive were those surveys and i've seen some of those surveys and they're (laughs) fascinating to go through yeah (laughs) definitely yeah yeah Yeah, on the um on the archives website they have a list 
of the collections that they have, the survey collections that they have. And it's quite a long and interesting list. So you can just go online and look at the survey itself and see what kinds of questions were being asked. And I know when in one of my undergrad courses at Memorial um, Martin, uh, Lovelace mm-hmm. uh, sent us home with cards. Um, yes, and we had folklore to come back. survey cards. Yes, we had to come back with 10, <laughs> ten items. Right. <laughs> So it's still a thing that's happening today, which I think is is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that kind of, um, I guess, fieldwork extending over decades, <laughs> you know, uh, once you get that, you, you build up, you can build up a really great collection, but also, you know, a sense of how things have changed over time, you know, and also maybe how some things have spread while others have not. <laughs> So we're kind of coming to a close with our with our interview here or with our chat. Uh, is there anything that's happening for the 50th anniversary that you want to mention or anything that I didn't ask you that you want to say? <laughs> um, well, we are planning some events around the, the conference that I mentioned earlier, um, FISAC, which takes place May 31st through June 2nd. Um, and we are planning some 50th anniversary events around that. Uh, I don't have details of those things yet, um, but you know certainly um we want as many people as possible who are interested to come and join us for those for those events awesome well thank you for coming on the show thanks tara and i'll see you at the conference see you there i'm tara barrett you've been listening to living heritage a production of chmr radio 93.5 in collaboration with the intangible cultural heritage office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ich underscore nl. Thanks for listening. <laughs>